Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 6th, 2012, and my guest is John Cochran, the AQR Capital Management Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. John, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. We're taping this on Election Day in the United States, and our topic is a spectacular paper that you wrote on what we might do with health care if we eliminated not just the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, but many of the restrictions that the government places in the health care market. The paper's so good, I'm tempted to read it out loud and just let you comment from time to time, but we'll actually have a conversation. But we will put a link up to the paper, and I encourage everyone listening to read it. It is quite... Um, Quite educational, entertaining, and uh, and very lively. Now, you start by making the distinction between healthcare and health insurance. Isn't health insurance the key? Don't we want everyone to have health insurance? Well, you're, uh, the, the way you pose that question, I think, reflects something unfortunate that's happened to the language. We, we assume that the only way these days you can get health care is if you have health insurance. People say we need people to have health insurance so they have access of course, you know, you have access to coffee because you have a dollar in your pocket and uh, somebody wants to sell you coffee. Uh, so I think we need to break that link to make this uh, sensible. So what we want, we certainly want everybody to be able to get uh, good quality, low cost, efficiently provided health care. Health insurance is part of that, but not the only part of that. And what, what insurance is supposed to do is insurance protects your wealth against the big costs of infrequent events. But to, to commingle the whole idea of you need to have insurance in order to be able to go get um, a, a Band-Aid put on is kind of the silly state of the world where we're at. And uh, the article was trying to think through uh, how, how we could arrange things a little better. You start off, though, with how you would restructure the insurance market if you had your druthers. Uh, and as in the paper, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But you do believe there should be the market, if left alone, there would be an insurance policy that would uh, that would emerge. Or do you want to regulate that? Uh, tell me what you think the ideal uh, health insurance problem yeah. to, to deal with the um, unexpected large things. Uh, and I'm adding the word unexpected, which you did not put in there, but I would include both <laughs> large and Thanks. unexpected. Well, I, I edited the paper better than uh, <laughs> our conversation. Uh, yes. Um, uh, so health insurance wasn't working that well. Now, part of why it wasn't working that well is that insurance always sits on top of, of a market. Your your car insurance sits on top of a functioning market for get your car fixed, and, and health insurance in many ways doesn't. But uh, there were problems with health insurance, and, and we do need to think about how health, in, health insurance can and should work. Um, and briefly, uh, the answer is uh, insurance should be individual. There's, there's no reason whatsoever that your insurance should be tied to where you work. So uh, whether who, no matter who pays for it, you should have an individual policy that insures you and goes with you when you quit your job or move across state lines or whatever. 
It should also be what we call guaranteed renewable, meaning that if you get sick, they won't drop you. Uh, that's not something that needs to be enforced by the government. It's something people want, and insurance companies can and will happily provide it. So um, why, don't, why don't we see it now? Uh, because it's illegal. Uh, flat out right now, <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> And uh, in addition, there's this big tax subsidy for employer-provided group insurance that is not available. If, you're, if your employer buys you an insurance policy that you can take with you, he can't take the tax deduction for it. So we've both subsidized and regulated the right system out of existence. Uh, so that's fairly easy to fix. Now we have the big mess on our hands. And the big mess is? Uh, the health care markets. And what needs to be done there? Why? What's wrong with it? It seems we have pretty good health care in the United States, it seems. What, what? Uh, we have pretty good health care, but as, as all of us know, um, uh, the, the way the market works is a model of lack of transparency, ridiculous prices, and so forth. Uh, in, in any other market, you can – I mean, if you walk into a hospital – and say, look, I, I, I'm a rich person. I got a million bucks. I don't need health insurance. I'll just pay for this. Um, their eyes light up and they start charging you ridiculous prices. Uh, actually, these always end up with stories. My wife was fighting a bill this morning because uh, she was into her dermatologist and asked the dermatologist, oh, by the way, as long as there, can you look at a wart on my foot? The dermatologist did. And then the bill was an, a $500 uh, extra charge was added to the bill for checking out war diagnosis three seconds. This sort of thing happens all the time. It's it's ridiculous. We all know that the market for health uh, care is 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 horribly distorted, which is why we all need insurance. So I think that's that, that's a cent, the central problem. So, so let's start as you do in the paper with the, uh, the supply side. We'll move on to the demand side later, which you just alluded to. On the supply side, uh, as you point out in the paper, there have been some incredible revolutions in customer service and provision of, of quality uh, in retailing. For example, you mentioned Walmart and Home Depot. Of course, that forced their competitors to match their efficiencies. Southwest Airlines, extremely effective in the airplane business and airline business, uh, automobile, automobile assembly. Um, why are hospitals seemingly so inefficient? Yeah. So hospitals are inefficient. We, we want uh, to bend down the cost curve and, and provide things that, uh, more efficiently. We also want uh, new and innovative products to come our way and, and then those costs to be driven down like, like cell phones are. Uh, so we look at hospitals and you can tell it's a, it's a mess. What's the difference? Well, one of the big differences is lack of competition. Um, uh, why can a hospital get away with uh, I'm not telling you how much it's going to cost before you walk in. Well, because there isn't a competitive hospital that can uh, come in and take your business by doing a better job. And that's what we saw in the airlines. I mean, we all like to complain about the airlines, but they cost a third as much as what they cost in the 1970s. And the key to that was competition on the supply side. Uh, new innovators were able to come in and undercut the old guys, figure out that wrenching transformation of how to make the industry more efficient and grab your and my money. And that's, that is not, that doesn't happen in the medical uh, field. It's just, there's lots of barriers to supply side competition to come in and take your money. Now, a lot of people get uneasy when they hear about competition in the medical field. I mean, it might be fine for some things, but healthcare, do we really want doctors trying to be cutthroat about trying to get people's business and that'll lead to bad practices. And we'll come at the end of this conversation 
to some of the uh, common criticisms that are made of a more market-based uh, approach. But right now, let's put that to the side and let's just ask the question, why isn't there more competition, which is what you deal with and one of the things you deal with in the paper? You're obviously right. Competition in the, in the electronics business, you refer to the fact that there's no Moore's law for uh, – I'm going to read this quote. You say, why does Moore's law not apply to medical devices? Why is the price of cell phones, GPS, and computers come down so fast relative to the prices of medical technology? Where's the home MRI? There's nothing deeply different about medical and other technology. The answer is that supply and demand in the current highly regulated system is not producing the Moore's law incentives. So what's stopping those incentives from, from emerging out of a competitive environment? So you said two things, and I yeah, want to I answer them both. The first one you said is this classic worry, oh, won't competition lead to terrible, shoddy service and so forth? And that's that's the constant theory um, expressed ahead of time. But let's look at our experience on, on what happens in competitive markets. Um, competitive markets don't survive by shafting you. They serve, uh, Competitive businesses are, are scared to death of a negative Yelp rating. And in fact, the kind of quality you get, say, from, from your computer maker is remarkably high. Now, why are we not seeing competition? Well, um, there's a lot of law and regulation stopping competition. And I'll give one example. It's one of thousands, but it's so clear that it, it really makes the story. Um, these are the certificate of need laws. So, and this, a lot of this stuff is state. It's not just federal regulation. So many states, including where I live, Illinois, uh, in order to build a new hospital or even to buy a big piece of equipment like a CAT scanning machine, you need to get a certificate of need from a uh, – there's a state board that issues these things. Uh, the people on it are appointed by the governor, which is that, – that's always a joke in Illinois. You say governor and everybody laughs. Um, and uh, it's explicitly in the charter that the purpose of this is to keep up profits at the existing hospitals. So existing hospitals are allowed to say, no, you can't bring in a specialty clinic that does dialysis cheap. You can't bring in a specialty colonoscopy practice that really knows how to get the people in and out the door and do a good job on that because that will threaten our profits. Well, you can imagine how happy United Airlines would be to have a board that could review every proposed expansion by Southwest and say, no, you can't do that. That's going to hurt United's profits. It used to have one. exactly what the airlines had back in the old days. And it was a lot more expensive. Just removing that was the key thing that that brought down airline uh, tickets by, by a factor of three. Um, so, and that you know that that's one example of the many little subsidies we have in place. If, if anything, it's amazing how well hospitals work. <laughs> if you and I, as, as economists, looked at this uh, highly regulated system where where it's very hard for new people to come in and compete and and can't compete on price in part because so much is paid by insurance. Um, you know, how, how is it that this whole thing doesn't fall apart? Well, it's full of really dedicated uh, people is the only way I can see. All right, so why isn't that enough? You'd think that would be we, – we, we both agree that, that most doctors and nurses and administrators care deeply about making people's lives better. Why isn't – in fact, that you'd think you could argue that would be even better than what motivates Southwest employees. I think they also care about people, but they have the profit incentive also. Uh, and you could argue that sometimes pushes them to cut corners. Why isn't the dedication and compassion of people in the medical business 
sufficient to produce the kind of innovations and improvements we're talking about elsewhere? As you said, for the same reason that the dedication of the airline employees was not enough to produce uh, efficiencies back back in the old days. I mean, efficiency is about uh, figuring out how to schedule things carefully. It's about um, not paying more than you have to. Uh, so efficiency in these other businesses was a, a wrenching process. Uh, you, you know, uh, airline pilots used to be paid a lot. They aren't anymore. Um, mechanics used to be unionized and paid a lot. They aren't anymore. When you can outsource things that need to be outsourced, you outsource them and you pay a lot less. This is, uh, for the suppliers, this is a wrenching process. And I think we, um, everybody in our political sphere has a hard time understanding the point of economics is to provide cheap quality goods for the consumer, not to uh, give everybody a, a chance to keep prices up and therefore um, um, uh, keep keep the profits of producers and, and other people like that in, in check. And that's, uh, that's really where it needs to go for the hospitals as it did for the airlines if what we want is low prices and good and efficient service. And let's talk about some of the processes uh, in the medical field. Uh, you write uh, another quote from the paper. It's amazing that computerizing medical records was part of the Affordable Care Act and stimulus bills. Why in the world do we need a subsidy for this? My bank computerized records 20 years ago. Why, in fact, do doctors not answer emails? And did they still send you letters by post office? Probably the last business to do so, or maybe grudgingly by fax. Why, when you go to the doctor, do you answer the same 20 questions over and over again? And what the heck are they doing trusting your memory to know what your medical history and medications are? So what's the answer there? Why, hasn't the, why haven't those improvements taken place naturally? And some of them have, of course. My doctor, my, my uh, internist does use uh, the equivalent of an iPad and some kind of uh, software that's, uh, so I'm sure, customized for the medical field. And he's been doing it. He did it before uh, the stimulus package passed. But it, it's been a very slow business to adopt modern technology. Why? Yeah, so it has been a, uh, a remarkably slow business. And, and there, too, I think it's um, there's a lot of regulation getting in the way. Uh, one of the big problems was uh, patient confidentiality laws, a fear of getting sued if uh, the wrong information went the wrong way. Uh, another part of it is is how they're paid. So, so there's restrictions on supply, which keep competition from coming, but there's also big restrictions on who, who pays what. Um, if, if the client isn't paying and, you know, he, there's the in-network hospital that he goes to, well, a new hospital has a hard time prying that client away. And, and a similar thing happens. Uh, so much of what ho- hospitals are, they spend a lot of time thinking about how they organize stuff, but they're organizing to the payment rules of both the government and the private insurers. So your, your doctor doesn't answer emails because he can get paid if you show up and, and wait in line for three hours and talk to him in person for 12 minutes and 30 seconds. But he can't get paid for answering an email. So, uh, you know, they weren't in the business of answering emails and, and strongly discouraging doctors from answering emails. Uh, now, that, that's if you're paying your own money, obviously, you're, you're, they figure it out. Your dentist answers emails. Your plastic surgeon answers emails. Uh, your vet answers emails because uh, you know they're in a business to get your money. The doctor is in a business to get the government's money or the insurance company's money. Uh, talk briefly about licensing, as you do in the paper. Uh, most people think licensing for the medical care profession is obviously a good idea. I mean, you wouldn't want some unqualified doctor, and yet it has some very serious costs. 
Yeah, and, and licensing, um, there's sort of a... The, the, the way to get a bunch of libertarians excited at late night when they've had too much beer is to talk about occupational licensing. So in, in the politically realistic world, we're not going to have no licensing. And, and licensing can maintain a minimum standard of quality. Um, but licensing gets used to restrict supply. And this was Milton Friedman's PhD thesis. Um, throughout many industries, um, groups put in licenses and then they make the license tests hard and then they restrict the number of people who can get the licenses all in order to keep up the prices of the people who benefit from those licenses. Um, taxi cabs are the most obvious example that most of us are familiar with. Uh, the c- cities restrict the number of taxi medallions. The result is uh, that you pay more for taxis than you would otherwise do if anybody who wanted to could go in and, and get a taxi inspected and licensed and so forth, but if we weren't limiting the supply of people who had them. And you give the example of a parent late at night trying to get some medication for his kid. <laughs> well, once you know, any anytime you do health stuff, you get people's uh, people's own um, uh, experiences. So I, I have four kids, and it seemed like every time we went on vacation, someone got an earache, and it was two o'clock in the morning, and I need five milligrams of amoxicillin, and I need it now, and and it's going to be a long trip to the emergency room so that a real doctor can charge two hundred bucks to peer in my kid's ear, say exactly. What what I know, it's red in there and prescribe me my amoxicillin and then I have to go down to get a real pharmacist to give it to me. All at monstrous extra cost. Yep. <laughs> and that could be solved in a much cheaper way by how? Oh, well, um, uh, um, certainly you could go to uh, a wall clinic. So why do I have to go to an emergency room? Why don't we have uh, retail clinics where a nurse practitioner, uh, duly licensed and bonded or whatever, can 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 look at you uh, for twenty five bucks, prescribe what you need, and and walk out? There is some um, movement in that direction, right? There, there is some, some movement in that direction, but if, but uh, it's been resisted quite strongly. Uh, but when you you know when you think of where we need to go, there's this big complaint that um, uninsured people go to emergency rooms and and charge up hundreds of dollars. Well, most of what they need could be easily handled at a a Walmart clinic for twenty five bucks. Uh, but but Walmart has a hard time getting into cities to sell uh, to sell yeah. clothes, <laughs> let alone to put in wall clinics. So there's been strong reaction to it. Now, at this point in the paper, you turn to some criticism uh, of the Affordable Care Act, and I, I apologize again. I have to read this because it's so good. Um, well, maybe we should have just read the paper while you and I well, uh, take a break. <laughs> we could. Again, I think that would be a, a nice ad- supplement to this podcast for those who are – who, who won't actually read it, but let, let me read this excerpt where you talk about uh, why the current regulatory regime is not going to be effective at, quote, bending the cost curve. You say the following, the Affordable Care Act and the health policy industry are betting that new regulation, price controls, effectiveness panels, accountable care organizations, and so on will force efficiency from the top down. And the plan is to do this while maintaining the current regulatory structure and its protection for incumbent businesses and employees. Well, let's look at the historical record of this approach, the great examples in which industries, especially ones combining mass market personal service and technology, have been led to dramatic cost reductions, painful reorganizations towards efficiency, improvements in quality, and quick dissemination of technical innovation by regulatory pressure, i.e., let's have a moment of silence. And your point being that there's no a reason to think that this is going to work. 
Yeah, go on and read the next paragraph because I was just getting going there. Yeah, it's true. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 the next paragraph is is no, we did not get cheap and amazing cell phones by government ramping up the pressure on the 1960s AT and T. Southwest Airlines did not come about from effectiveness panels or an advisory board telling United and American how to reorganize operations. The massive auto regulation did nothing to lower costs or induce efficient production by the three, big three. When has this ever worked? Post office, Amtrak, Department of Motor Vehicles, road construction, military procurement, the TSA, regulated utilities, the last 20 or so medical cost control ideas, the best example and worst performance of it all, wait for it, public schools. It simply hasn't <laughs> happened. Government imposed efficiency is to put it charitably a hope without historical precedent and for good reason. So why don't you talk about what those reasons are? Why we <laughs> Boy, should I had be fun there, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, you did. And, and as, as you told me before we started recording, you wrote this paper. You're not a healthcare economist. You're a finance and macroeconomist, but of course you know some price theory. Uh, so you were kind of dabbling uh, in other people's. Um, uh, territory, and I, I'm sure they were not so happy to hear this. But uh, why, why should we be skeptical? You know, maybe this time will be different. Maybe it will. I think it was said of second marriages, the triumph of hope over experience. That's right. Uh, well, there there is fundamental. There, there's reasons why, and I don't want to sound like I'm an anti-government anarchist. You know, the government does. That's stuff. my job, John. Fine. <laughs> You know, the government does stuff fine. It, you know, it, it, it repaved the road outside in front of my house. Now, I could tell it paid three times as much as it needed to, but it got the road repaved. You know, uh, stuff that we can't do otherwise, the government can do. But the, n- no one has ever thought of, of government as being the, the way to get stuff done efficiently. We thought of it as being the way to get stuff done, you know, to fight World War II, stuff that has to be done at horrendously inefficient cost, but, but you know, they have to do it. Now, reasons, yes. Um, uh, governments have, have to listen to everybody. So, you know, all the stakeholders are there. So imagine a government saying, you have to outsource these jobs to China because it's cheaper and will give us lower prices for consumers. And there's no way. They, you have to bust up this union and, and move production to, uh, to, to a non-union state because that's cheaper for consumers. Uh, you have to let lots more people into medical schools so that uh, we or let foreign doctors practice so that we'll drive down the, the uh, how much you guys make. I mean, just governments by their nature have to listen to everybody and and uh, the consumers always last in line. So, so I think that I would I would put that as sort of reason one why that approach just doesn't doesn't work and, and can't work. But you point out correctly that this in the marketplace, um, you know, you, you drive a Lexus and I drive an Accord and someone else drives a Hyundai and somebody's in first class and, and the airlines and somebody's in the back and somebody else is on the bus to make that trip. And we tolerate that distinction when we talk about most goods, but we're uneasy doing that for healthcare. We, do we really want a world where the rich people get the best healthcare and poor people get lousy healthcare? Yeah, well, this is this is the hard fact about healthcare, <laughs> and the hard fact about political allocation of everything. Healthcare is a personal service. It's not like filling the pothole out in front of your house, where it's kind of clear and everybody gets the same thing. It's a, it's it's the most important personal service you can get. Its uh, quality varies enormously. And um, you know, in in the, in the economy as we have it. 
people get different qualities of stuff according to their willingness to pay um, mostly and their ability to pay a little bit less. And we'd like to say, oh, the best for everybody. And, and I don't think you can say anything less than that in the political sphere. But, but the fact is there's only so much GDP to go around and, and the best for everybody just can't happen. Uh, we, all, uh, we can't all fly on private jets. Um, some of us got to go Southwest. And, and I'm one of those people. I'm in, I'm in economy on Southwest. Um, why? Because it's not worth it. <laughs> and yeah. I don't have the money for a private jet. Right. But Southwest gets me there. You know, it's not a heartless, terrible, eco- uh, uh, terrible um, uh, economy that I have to fly in, in the middle seat in the back of Southwest. I, I get where I'm going at, at, um, at reasonable price and very good safety. Um, but a government can't possibly allocate health care that way. And they don't. Um- so I think the real issue is there. There's a trade-off between uh, egalitarianism. Well, they, they promise the best for everybody, and that money not being around, we we sort of get the worst for everybody, or something in the middle. And some people would say that's better than having some people get not very good at all. And I think then the question is, how bad is it for the average person relative to wealthier people? And I think the Southwest Airlines or the car example, you know, being being you know suffering through driving a Hyundai is not suffering. Well, I think these industries have done a very good job, uh, faced with competitive pressure, on figuring out what dimensions of quality are really important and what dimensions of quality really aren't important. So, so for example, um, you know, suppose that uh, one person gets to have uh, their MRI um, uh, two blocks from his office at at one o'clock in the afternoon, and somebody else has to have it at nine o'clock at night uh, across town. You know, we both get the same MRI. Now, if if that costs a lot less, is it really so unjust? And that's what Southwest has figured out. Um, I'm I'm willing to put up with being in the back of the cattle car, but having a very safe trip because I pay a lot less to do it. And it's on time. But of time. course, if the government said, John, you got to go uh, economy class, and and Russ, you get to go business class. Well, we'll be out in the streets fighting that with pitchforks. It is so that it turned out that paying their own money. People were willing to sit in tiny seats uh, and remarkably uh, unwilling to pay 20 or $30 to get slightly seats that are slightly farther apart. Yet, can you imagine the, the government seat selection board saying all seats shall be 27 inches apart? <laughs> well, they might because uh, those seats are going to be very inefficient, and that's the best they can do. That they can't. I mean, I think the real trade off here is between. The innovations that competition produce, which usually mean that the average person gets a great deal. There are some people who get a better deal than that, though, obviously, in, in the private market, right? As you point out, you know, your Lexus is more comfortable than my Accord, but we both get a really nice, safe and, and, a, and car that's very reliable. I think that's a pretty good world. That beats all of us driving a Yugo um, or a, 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 I can't remember the Soviet, uh, the Lada, is that the name of the Soviet car? That's both ugly – not both. It's ugly. It's expensive, and it's not a very good. It's not very reliable, and that's what I worry we get when we say let's give everybody the same quality because healthcare is too important 
to leave to the market. Yeah, and that's that's inevitable because because what you don't do is you you don't squeeze the efficiency frontier. And and in fact, so the private industries have done a remarkable job of socialism, <laughs> of of taking from rich people and and giving it to poor people. And look look at business class. Uh, those those guys out in the front are ridiculously overpaying, uh, by my mind, for the slightly wider seats. But what you and I get sitting in the back of economy class is uh, they cover most of the fixed cost of the flight. And you and I are being cross-subsidized up to the hilt by by the people up in, in business class. Now, if, if a government said we're going to tax the rich, if you will, and, and they're going to have to pay three, four times what we pay for what looks like the same, people would be up in arms. Yet, yet we voluntarily do this. And similarly, that uh, innovation, uh, the system for innovation in, in the rest of the economy is is people who are either willing to pay or rich or, or find the money, subsidize the innovations, and then it trickles down to the rest of us. Um, and that's how we get, you know, if you're just willing to wait a year or two, you actually get stuff. Well, that that's, again, a thing that a, sort of the government planning board couldn't possibly do, yet the result is none of us get the innovations. Now let's we're we're moving into the demand side and let's let's fully go there. Uh, what's wrong with the demand side of healthcare? Why is it so distorted? Uh, well, uh, lots of reasons still so distorted, but um, health insurance became health payment plans. So it's as if, you know your car insurance doesn't pay for your oil changes for all sorts of good reasons. Imagine if in order to get an oil change, you had to call up and your primary mechanic had to diagnose that you needed an oil change and send you off to the oil change specialist. And then you had to wait six weeks and then fill out three forms in, 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 and fax them in and provide your car maintenance history and then, and then argue over the copay, right? We don't do that. Yet health insurance t- turned into being this way. And the reason is because of the tax deduction. Uh, by, by making regular expenses part of insurance, then everyone can get the tax deduction for it that they wouldn't otherwise get. But then once a market is all paid for by insurance, it gets, you know, nobody's paying their own money. This is, you know, fairly obvious stuff. And if people paying their, aren't paying their own money, then both they are, don't have the incentive to economize, but more importantly, um, suppliers can't make money by, by inventing the Southwest Airlines and saying, look, I can give you the same thing with a little inconvenience, but I can cut the price in half. Well, you and I say, why, why should we bother with that? And, and most of all, because, and furthermore, um, a hospital has to choose one or the other. You can be an all-cash hospital, but you can't, or you can be an insurance hospital, but you can't be half and half because the whole insurance company game falls apart if you actually list, list the prices. So that, that just kills that, that method of the fact that we're all paying for our regular expenses and they've turned into payment plans uh, that, that hurts the demand side and hurts the supply side and gums up the works on everything. Yeah, but some people would argue that you, that's a good thing to have it just being a, a, the insurance being paying for everything because you only healthcare is what you need. I mean, we don't want people having to make decisions to economize on their health care. That's the reason we want it to be a to cover everything. I mean, well, that's a horrible thing. So people would have to make decisions, life and death decisions about whether to go to the hospital or not. I mean, that sounds awful. You're, you're serving me up these softballs here, aren't you? That's my job. <laughs> I have, don't worry. Uh, yeah, I, I have um, my, just John. I have to. I tell the listening audience we have Marsha Angel coming on in a few weeks, so you know she'll get. She'll give the other side, I'm sure. Uh, so we will hear uh, someone from the other side of the spectrum, but. 
Uh, I love it when people complain that we have too much free market healthcare conversation on this on this program because uh, you know there's so much of it everywhere else. I mean, why would you need it? But my, you know, my view is if if you want to hear the other side, it's everywhere. So I, I like to think that maybe we could use a little more of this up this bottom up emergent story as a possible healthcare improvement. So carry on. Well, you're you're right. It's it's kind of funny how the the um it's seen as radical, yet, yet the free market, uh, you know, applies just absolutely everywhere else. And it's kind of funny that it's out of the conversation, even though it seems fairly straightforward. So need and 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 who can shop and so forth. Yes, I think one of the biggest problems is we tell these anecdotes like, oh, people in life and death situations can't can't shop, but. You know, what fraction of healthcare expenses are actually made in the heat of a life and death situation? Answer, practically none. Um, that, that doesn't say why it is that health insurance should cover my dermatology, annual dermatology checkup, uh, or, or why I can't be asked, uh, you know, oh, if, I, if I'm going to see my doctor, do I have to do it over here or, or across town, or all the many other little conveniences of, of daily in and out care. And, and so much of healthcare is not, uh, I broke my arm, I had a heart attack, patch me up. I mean, all the expensive stuff is chronic long-term conditions where there's a whole range of different things we might do for you. None of it really works. Which kind of side effects does it have? Where the, um, the convenience aspect of treatment is, is as much important as actually which drugs you get and when. Uh, dirty little secret is how, how little compliance there is among patients for long-term, uh, for long-term regimens. And that sort of thing is all very amenable to people shopping and to suppliers trying to offer uh, the bright package of cost and convenience. But the dirty little secret is um, you know, people have to be paying on the margin out of pocket that you have to see the economic consequences of your choices if we're ever going to get um, the, the kinds of process efficiencies that can bring the costs down. And let, let me tell us, as long as you're letting me go, let me, sure. I think if we phrase this the right way, <laughs> rather than saying you have to pay for that expensive test, uh, suppose that you know your doctor says, look, you need an MRI, and, and the insurance company is going to get billed 5000 bucks. So what happens if the insurance company said, look, you, you can have the MRI or you can have the 5000 bucks cash right now. Or you can have the 5000 bucks, but if you're willing to go across town and get it at 2 o'clock in the morning, we'll, you'll, uh, you, you can get 2000 bucks cash. A lot of people would pick that. The MRI is typically something that you don't have to have this instant anyway. Um, well, on the margin, I'm, I'm telling the story to try to get the can't afford stuff out of, you, out of your mind, but on the margin, people making those kinds of choices is the only way that we're going to get um, uh, costs and efficiency down. So let me read another excerpt here, which I think highlights a very uh, useful perspective on insurance that I think we often forget about. You're talking, you're giving this paper at a conference of you know, healthcare folk, and you said, Nobody in this room really needs health insurance for anything less than catastrophes. We pay for transmission repairs, leaking roofs, and vet bills out of pocket. Most people in this room send kids to private schools, throwing away a right to expensive public education. We could easily afford most of our routine medical expenses and even pretty big unplanned ones, especially if we were paying commensurately lower health insurance premiums. But we all have health insurance and deal with the paperwork nightmare. Why? 
You don't need an insurance company to negotiate your cell phone contract, home repair, rehab, mortgage, airline fare, legal bills, or clothes, and pay as we do for health. So you raise the question, you make the point that a lot of what healthcare insurers are doing is doing the shopping for us, and that is um, nuts. <laughs> uh, we, but we take it, we take it as just well, well, of course. I don't look at the price. My health insurance company did that, and, and that's a. A remarkable uh, change from 50 years ago when that was was different and prices, of course, were it much is lower. Not, you know, and you started this conversation with don't we want everyone to have health insurance? And, and let's, let's go back to that because I think it is an important sort of an eye-opening question. Why, why do relatively well-off people, why do they have health insurance? It used to be health insurance had a million-dollar lifetime cap. So if you had five million bucks, why do you need health insurance? The most they're ever going to give you is a million bucks. Well, now you know why even even rich people wanted health insurance, because if you walk into the hospital, you're just a mark uh, ready to be squeezed. Uh, which, which is kind of sad. And for example, I don't have, uh, I don't know about you, I don't have collision insurance. I have a 10 year old Honda. Why do I need collision insurance on it? If it crashes, I'll either dump it or I'll go buy a new car. I, you know, I have $10,000 worth of risk bearing capacity there. Right. And health insurance ought to be the same way because then you save on my, my example of the filling out the forms for the oil changes. Well, as you know, you walk into a hospital and say I'm paying cash, and and uh, and they say Hallelujah! They you know they'll charge five hundred dollars for a band aid. Why? Because uh, we're in this system of cross subsidies. Um, Medicare and Medicaid pay far less than they cost. The insurance companies, uh, which are fairly uncompetitive at this point, there's not that many of them left. Uh, they're willing to go along. They they pay medium rates. They have negotiated rates with the hospitals. They know they're paying more than they should because they're cross-subsidizing the Medicare and Medicaid, but hospitals not being a competitive business, there's no way to get around that. But then they have these big negotiated rates. So so the, and you can't tell what they're actually getting. There's, there's rebate. They have this system of rebates for this, that, and the other thing. And then the poor schmuck who, who walks in and, and wants to pay uh, cash, he faces this huge sticker sticker price, which, which nobody's actually paying. A lot of that is just so we can put a chit in the door, and when the, when the uh, indigent um, guy goes bankrupt, then we can you know, say, well, I'm not going to charge you $500,000. How about you pay me you know, $2,500, and we'll get rid of it. I, mean, I remember when, uh, when one of the times my wife was uh, delivering one of her children, the orange juice was I think it was five hundred dollars. Actually, I looked at the bill. I, of course, I didn't pay it. It came out of my insurance, but I actually looked at the bill and it said something like five hundred dollars. Now, if I had said to part of the problem is, like you said, I think it's a made up number. And the reason I think it's a made up number is that you know, be obviously, I'd be thrilled to bring my own uh, uh, orange juice and get a four hundred thirty dollar rebate or four hundred eighty dollar rebate or something. And the insurance company would be happy for you to do it if it really did cost $500. So I don't even know what oh, that is. I love this. i got to try this. Go ahead. I'll bring orange juice. See, no, no, no. Oh, 500 bucks? How about I, I sell to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we'll, and we'll, knock, the, we'll knock the bill down. And, and you'd think that would, you know, that should be happening all over the place. The fact that it's not tells me that those are fake numbers um, and that, that it's not realistic. But what you And point? fake numbers means you're looking at a completely uncompetitive market. Correct. Uh, and what's – so – uh, you did mention that the, there are only there aren't that many insurance companies. Uh, doesn't that make you uneasy about a private market for insurance in a less regulated, less subsidized world? 
Well, there, there. Uh, I think there are very few because it's such a regulated and, and subsidized world. I mean, they've, they've been driven to large economies of. Uh, you know, you, you can only have a couple of them left. We're heading to sort of where we're fortunately heading in finance as well. Um, you have to be to, to, to deal with the regulations. You, you have to have lots of lobbyists and lots of connections in Washington, and that see, that highly regulated system seems to end up with five big banks, five big insurance companies, um, all, all in cahoots with the government. Uh, too big to fail, too big to compete. Uh, certainly, we're not going to let new upstarts in to try to take business from them. And aren't there a lot of restrictions on interstate uh, competition among insurance companies? Yeah, that's um, there's interstate and there's intrastate. I mean, sort of the obvious one that got some political uh, traction is, wait a minute, why can't I shop across state lines? Which also, more deeply, means why can't I keep my insurance when I move across state lines? You know, that immediately dumps you into a pre-existing condition the minute you move across state lines. Um, but there's there's all sorts of regulation on insurance within states. So, you know, in Illinois, uh, health insurance has to pay for acupuncture, uh, and therefore my premiums go up to pay for your acupuncture. Whose fault is that? That's the state insurance commission. That's not the. That's not yet the federal regulations. Now, the federal regulations are going to add layers <laughs> of all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, it's coming. Um, well, let's talk now. Let's turn to some of the objections that people have to letting markets emerge here. A, a good friend of mine's a doctor and... He's free market oriented, but he says, you know, healthcare, that's, that's different. I mean, what are we going to do? I think he may have even used your actual example. What are we going to do about, uh, the homeless person who has a heart attack? We're just going to let him, we have private market and healthcare. That person would just die in the street. Well, well, we might start we, when a doctor tells you, oh, healthcare is too important to be left to economics. You know, you answer, great, we'll put you on a $20,000 salary from the federal government. And because uh, it's too important to ask you to actually take money for something so important as healthcare. Let's see what he said. Yeah, well, he, that's correct. He, he would not like that. But uh, so that the uh, right, the straw man of the, the homeless guy who's going to have a heart attack in the street. And um, there's so many of these little straw man anecdotes pervading this. It's very frustrating. But that's not what we're talking about with with the ACA and with the vast majority of uh, the regulation of, of healthcare. So we need a system of charity care, and charity healthcare has been around for at least 800 years, if if not longer. In fact, uh, it, it mostly was charity for a long time. Um, but in order to solve the problems of a, a homeless guy with a heart attack, it, I don't see where it's written that the federal government has to mandate that your and my health insurance has to provide wellness benefits and uh, acupuncture treatments yeah. uh, or that uh, no hospital may ever compete. So, yes, uh, we do need a system of charity care, but this is not about charity care. It's about a huge middle-class entitlement. It's about fundamentally, uh, rather than average middle-class Americans who might earn forty to eighty thousand dollars a year, uh, rather than saying, uh, "Look, you're you're going to pay for your regular stuff, and you're going to have an insurance policy that covers the really catastrophic stuff," we're saying to those people, "No, um, it's all going to be pay. You're going to pay taxes, and someone's paying. There's no government that pays." Uh, we are going to pay for this stuff through your taxes, uh, or, or, and then um, this, this, it's all going to be provided for you free. 
And you don't need to create a huge middle-class entitlement uh, with commensurate tax payments in order to solve the problems of, of charity care for homeless people. And of course, if we weren't subsidizing health care so dramatically as we currently do, the those market prices that would emerge, uh, which would be real prices, would be much lower. They wouldn't obviously. Not only would they not be five hundred dollars for an orange juice, they wouldn't be. A, they wouldn't be eighty. Uh, they'd be three or four or five. Right. Uh, my trip to the emergency room to get amoxicillin for my child's ear infection ought to cost about twenty five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't cost five hundred dollars in, in in four hours of my time at two in the morning. Yeah. Although you uh, argue- and, and I think uh, a competitive system would go a long way towards. Uh, towards providing better stuff for poor people. You know, when we protect an industry, who ends up hurt the most is is always the poor, um, who, who are not allowed to be served by uh, bare bones but effective uh, and and low cost services. Uh, what about adverse selection? Uh, you you mentioned that also. Is there uh, the idea that insurance markets won't work for health care because the six people will be the ones who want the insurance. They know that. And then uh, the uh, the market will just collapse. What's wrong with that argument? Yeah, it's a good example of how a little bit of economics is a bad thing because <laughs> – uh, we all trundle through the economics classes, and then and you know you get your supply and demand, and then the teachers following the textbook and says now then there's monopoly, and then there's adverse selection and moral hazards. So we remember all these little stories, even though it's not clear that those stories have anything to do with the actual uh, problems in the real world. So adverse selection happens when uh, you know more about your health than the insurance company. So then uh, people who know that they're sick sign up for insurance. Uh, people who don't know that they're sick, who know that they're healthy, don't sign up for insurance because the prices are too high. You only get the sick people in insurance markets, and the insurance market supposedly falls apart. Nice theory. Now, let's look at the real world. First of all, do you actually know more about your health than an insurance company that has access to all your medical records and, and maybe your last physical? Or do maybe they know a lot more about your health than you do? Second, why is it that insurance companies charge everyone the same price? They don't condition on the, on the health that they can plainly and obviously see. Fat people don't pay more than thin people. Smokers uh, don't pay more than non-smokers. Um, all, all sorts of things they don't condition on. Why? Um, because the government forces them not to. They are forced to offer the same product to everyone at the same price. So we do have adverse selection, but it's not because of the information problem you learned about in economics class. It's imposed by the government, and and the the ACA is is doubling down on that idea. Everybody gets health insurance, uh, no no pre-existing com- conditions, and everyone has to pay the same amount for it. Well, that that's adverse selection waiting to happen. Although I do think there, I think you can get a discount if you don't smoke. I think there are some. Uh, but you don't. They don't make put you on a scale and charge you. Uh, charge you uh, different amounts. Sorry, I got my. I may have gotten my facts wrong on the smoking, think, which is I'm important. Sure. Let's I think so. keep the facts right because I. Know, but yes, uh, they don't um, fully rate you by all of your. All, sure. They don't look at your medical history and your last physical and say exactly how much this is going to cost you because they're not allowed to. Uh, and I also, I just want to mention in passing that you do mention. I think which is such a nice example. This. Uh, this difference between theorizing and the real world that uh, George Akerlof, a Nobel Prize winner, the most famous paper is the market for lemons that because of 
asymmetric information between the buyer and the seller. The There should be no used car market. Well, of course, somehow that problem gets solved. The market finds ways around that problem. I, and I, sh- I don't want to be unfair to Akrolov. I don't, I don't know if he really said there should not be one. But obviously, many people jump from that kind of theoretical result to the to the implication that the market would never be able to provide this, and it provides it just fine. Yeah, no, G- George's paper is, I'm a big Arkola fan, and his paper is brilliant for showing here's the problem unless we find some way to fix that problem. <laughs> and uh, it turns out the markets uh, have, have found ways of fixing that problem, or it turns out that, as in the case of health insurance, it's, it's not obvious that there really is a big information asymmetry, that you know uh, so much more about your health that the health insurance company knows um, that, that it can happen. I think the same is true increasingly in used cars. You don't really know a whole lot more about how good your car is than the possible than the purchaser can, especially if he has a mechanic look at it and look over the records. That's yeah. why the used car market works. We know a few things, but of course, if if you were if you're buying my used car, you're going to work really hard to find out what I might know. And there are a lot of different ways you could do that. Uh, right. I'm selling my car today, probably actually, as it turns out. And there are a couple things I know that aren't obvious, uh, which I will reveal because I'm an honest person, but uh, I understand that not everybody's honest. And if in a world where people are not totally honest, you're going to have to, your people are going to look. <laughs> the question is how effective that is, an empirical question. And most of the times it seems to, seems to work, uh, work pretty well. What about? And then we have insurance. I mean, insurance is the issue. We have insurance for all sorts of things. I mean, asymmetric information does not make car insurance fall apart. It doesn't make home insurance fall apart. Um, so it's not obvious why you can't have health insurance because of asymmetric information. What about the complaint that uh, we don't know enough about our health care generally? We don't want to become experts. Let's let the government decide what the best treatments are. I should get the diagnosis from from experts. And uh, if people could shop around, they're going to make a lot of stupid mistakes. They're going to throw away money. They're going to sometimes skimp on health care and preventive care and therefore hurt themselves. Much better to let the experts decide from the top down. Well, you threw a whole lot of things in there. <laughs> yeah, we could spend another hour on that, but do your best. You got five, I'll give you yeah. five minutes. Right. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, in healthcare, we are buying a good where the seller knows more than we do. Although my, my doctor cringes every time I show up with a whole bunch of stuff printed out from WebMD and Wikipedia. So <laughs> that's changing. But throughout the economy, we purchase services from people who know a lot more than we do. We buy lawyer services, we buy tax accountant services, we, we buy um, financial services, we buy home repair services. You know, I can't tell A grade from B grade plywood. Uh, and, and somehow we're able to buy services uh, from people who know more than we do, and, and, and that works fine. It's not obvious why that can't work. I mean, it works you know, for the vet services where you pay your own money, and it works for the dental services where you work, pay your own money, and plastic surgery where you pay your own money. Uh, why does the government have to run it? And conversely, all of these things, there's this funny thing that happens where you come up with one straw man where the market doesn't work, and supposedly I therefore accept that the government has to decide what we all need. Wait a minute. <laughs> We're comparing two different institutions. Both so how odd. good is the, is the home repair advisory board going to be at figuring out what kind of kitchen counters you need? And just which kind of fridge do you want and, and what kind of fixtures should go on the lights uh, as opposed to you doing your best um, with, and especially help with the one thing that's most important for your whole life. 
we got to remember, I think there's this vision in people's mind of health being very simple and, and easy to figure out. You know, you have a pothole, you need the pothole fixed. You have a broken arm, you need it set. No, most of what we do with health is, is it's not clear what you need. It's not even clear what the di- how much diagnosis do you need. We've all been running around from specialist to specialist and, you know, getting that right and then which course of treatment do we need. It's not at all something that's, that 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 kind of personal service couldn't be supplied from top down. I mean, if you don't if you don't think the government could provide you home rehab here, our rehab counselor will come in and take care of it for you. I mean, goodness gracious, why would they be able to tell you what kind of health care you need? Well, you could argue that the color of the granite is a personal preference, but the color of your splint or your cast is irrelevant. And so, I'm not sure you know that, that that's the right analogy. Obviously. And I think the other the cr- other criticism that you'd hear is that, you know, they work pretty well, those markets in the private sector, like home repair and car repair, but they don't work very well. Uh, they certainly, it's interesting. They don't work nearly as well as, as, as buying the shirt or the, uh, the tools at, at Home Depot or the shirt at Walmart. Those markets work a lot better than these more complicated service provisions where you're not sure what's wrong. You know, you take your car and it's making a funny noise. You've got a chest pain. These markets are prone to mistakes, some of them honest, some of them not so honest. So I think it's an interesting challenge for those of us who would want a more bottom-up healthcare system to make that case more definitively. Because I think most people would argue that the car repair and the home repair markets are, are full of thieves and and it's it's a frustrate can be a very frustrating business. No, it is that's a good point that the markets for services like these especially with a wide uh, divergence of expertise uh, are are troublesome I and mean, they haven't really been corporatized. Um the uh, airline services is is kind of a service. Um but uh you know taxis are still kind of a <laughs> disaster as kind of quality is concerned. Uh, but nonetheless, the the alternative of, of of government deciding what you need and then prescribing it for you, it, it sounds great if you have in mind a broken arm. But if you have any of the modern diseases, uh, it's 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 kind of a dream that there's some panel of experts who can say, here's exactly what you need and what you don't need. Uh, especially with so many things that we have where we're kind of on the edge of sort of understanding what works and sort of understanding what doesn't work. How many experimental treatments do you need versus not need when we're not really going to be able to fix you? Yeah, it is. It's very, it's very complicated. And you, know, you gave the example in the, in the paper of back pain. And, uh, you know, we can think of lots of examples. Chronic pain generally is, is a bit of an art and not so much a science. And it's not, I think the right, Conclusion to draw is that the private sector works fairly well, not 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 as well as it does in other areas, but it works fairly well. And would the government sector work better? Not oh well, as you say, not that the private sector is flawed, so we have to replace it. Show me that the public sector will have the incentives to do what's best for me uh, or what, what's best for for most of us. Um, the other complaint you hear is that you know, it's okay for you to come in with your WebMD stuff, but the average person isn't smart enough to do that, and, and they'll be taken advantage of by by doctors. Yeah, it's, it's so horribly patronizing. It's it's, it's offensive. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> oh, we the, we, the aristocracy, need to take care of them because they're too stupid to make their own decisions. Uh, but, of course, w- that doesn't apply to us. You know, you Not and to me, me yeah. or us in the health policy field, we, we have the connections. We know how to do this for ourselves. Yeah, I find it insulting too. Um, but they don't. It's interesting. The people who make that argument feel they feel virtuous about it. We we, we don't find it so virtuous. Um, 
But we've got about five minutes. Well, we've got to be practical. Uh, so let's take, you know, let's try to find examples where has that ever worked, especially in something where, you know, personal preferences matter as much as health care. Uh, and, and I think the answer is, is no, where, you know, where you have things where, where governments decide, especially at a national level, here's the kind of car everybody needs. Here's the kind of air travel everybody needs. Uh, the results have been pretty catastrophic. Uh, the Trabant versus, you know, even the Chrysler. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, we've got about five minutes left, uh, and you end your paper talking about the political feasibility of this kind of move. Uh, as I said at the beginning, it's election day today. In theory, if Romney wins, we're going to maybe move away from uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Uh, if Obama wins, presumably it's going to become more ensconced. Uh, what's your advice? And you admit, you can see it early on in the paper. This is a long run strategy, not a strategy probably for tomorrow. Either way, uh, how do we get there from here? What's, what are your thoughts on, um, how we get to a more, uh, competitive emergent healthcare system compared to the one we have now? We seem to be moving in the opposite direction. Yeah, we do. And, and I don't, um, you know, even, uh, uh, when Romney was was pushed on what is he going to do, he said, "Well, but of course, you know, we can't let uh, insurance companies discriminate on pre-existing conditions." Well, geez, uh, you, once you've done that, you've swallowed the fly. That you know, the old lady who swallowed the fly. Yeah, it's over. Uh, and 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 once you do that, you've you've got most of the ACA. Um, so what do we do? I I, I think um, you and I operate on, on the range of ideas, and and I do think ideas matter. Um, you're not going to get a, a free market approach to health care as long as most of the voting population says, oh, health care, uh, that's too complicated for the market. Uh, we, we know it has to be provided. And so long as it's, it's, it's repellent, the idea that you should have to pay for this stuff, that somehow, you know, the government will give it to you for free and that's a right forgetting the fact that somebody has to pay the bill somewhere. So I think we, I think there is a point in saying things that are politically infeasible in the next six months because um, you have to chip away at the ideas. And, and once, first you need a majority of motor, voters to say, to understand, yes, the only way I'm going to get the Southwest Airlines, the only way I'm going to get a halfway reasonable health care here is to free the darn thing up, not to add layers and layers and layers more bureaucracy on top of it. That's, that's going to lead me to Trabants and, and Ladas, not, not to Ferraris. Or Southwest. Sack then, you know, hope step two is you're in the situation we're in so much rest of government where everybody understands what we've got is silly and now we've got to get through the political process. Um, uh, you know, with taxes, we all understand the current U.S. tax code is insane. And yet, you know, now we now we can talk about how to make it politically feasible to get it through. So I think it's worth operating on the level of ideas and not a 57 point plan with, um, you know, what do you repeal and what regulation do you keep and so forth. And it's always good to remember, um, the, as F.A. Hayek pointed out, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. I don't think it applies. I, I don't think it applies anymore, anywhere more, more uh, pointedly than in the healthcare market. Yeah. So, so yeah, how long did it take between uh, Adam Smith and Hayek and airline deregulation? Uh, well, you know, Ad, Adam Smith didn't come up with a 22-point plan for airline deregulation, but but he did get the idea out there, and we have to do the same thing for health insurance. My guest today has been John Cochran. John, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. 
Thanks. It was a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.